0: Welcome to History, Books, and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori Ann Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 10 of history books and wine podcast. Can you believe it? We've reached 10 episodes already. I'll drink to that. Thank you all for joining me tonight. I am Eliza Knight, your host for today. I'm a USA Today bestselling author of Scottish historical romance with irresistible heroes, courageous heroines and daring adventure. Under my name, E Knight, I write rip your heart out historical fiction that crosses the landscapes around the world. Today, I'm going to be talking about something we all have to do, but don't really love. And after today's podcast, you're going to possibly feel very lucky to be living in the modern era. So, what am I talking about? Cleaning. But first, I'm going to tell you what I'm drinking tonight on this special 10-episode monumental moment. I am having a Sledgehammer Cabernet Sauvignon. On the website, it says that wine is for men, not boys. But I'd like to add that it's also for awesome ladies, too. The Cab Sav description says, "'Live large and prosper, rich as a king and smooth as silk, with none of the pretense.'" I personally think this goes well with manual labor we're talking about, because if we have to clean, we might as well drink like royals. And as such, I shall be having a sip. Very delicious. There's been much conflicting information about whether or not people in the Middle Ages were as clean as we are within our own homes. I think that's all a load of you-know-what. With what little tools they had to use comparatively and to the way they lived, I believe they kept their homes to the best of their abilities. Think about it. They didn't have vacuums, steam cleaners, Swiffers, Lysol, or Windex. We do. But guess what? Those of us using natural products for cleaning, they're likely very similar to the products made in the medieval era. And let's be honest, some of us don't mind living in a pigsty now and then, do we? Hello, deadlines time for me. At least that's what my kids seem to think too with their bedrooms. Where did the phrase you live in a pigsty come from? Because, you know, we're nerding out here. We're history. Let's let's talk about this funny word pigsty. Well, the word pigsty originated in the 1590s and and of course it comes from the word pig pen. It wasn't until the late 1800s that it was used to describe someone's living conditions as a dirty, messy or nasty place. Oh, talking about that. I just realized I left a load of laundry in the washer. I guess I'm gonna have a sip of wine to that all right let's dig right into the dirt how would you go about cleaning a medieval castle. Well, everyone had his or her own job to make sure that the place was in order, as well as someone to report to. Obviously, the lord and lady would be the head honchos, but underneath them, you could have a steward, housekeeper. In some instances, you might even have a chatelaine or castellan. A chatelaine is a mistress of the castle, and a castellan is the governor of a castle. A husband and wife could be castellan or chatelaine together. These two would take place of the lord or lady. Let's say they were not in attendance at home, or in some instances, if there was no lord, the lady may employ governor and vice versa. A steward, also referred to as a seneschal, was much more likely. His job was to take care of the estate and supervise the staff, as well as take care of the events in the Great Hall. The housekeeper would be in charge of the kitchen staff, the chambermaids, and the cleaning of the estate. Underneath the big dogs, you might have various other workers, all the way down to the actual people who would do the cleaning, like housemaids, scullions, laundresses. Those were the people that really cleaned quite a bit, and who I'm going to be talking about specifically today. So a housemaid would have quite a lot to do on her list from the time she woke up in the morning until she finally collapsed that night. She would need to sweep the floors, generally downstairs until those who were sleeping had risen, and then she would head upstairs. But even sweeping was a big deal. For instance, a lot of medieval castles had the floors strewn with rushes or straw. This was sort of like an insulating thing to keep out some of the cold, but also to hide some things, I think. It was her job to see that these were cleaned up and replaced, but how often is a good question. It depended on the castle and who ran it. Some were changed monthly, some seasonally, and some once a year. Whatever the case, you can only imagine what was found underneath. If you can't imagine, I'll give you a little hint. Bones from food, rodents, pet messes, sometimes human messes, bugs, dirt, grime, you get the picture. But in case you did not get that picture, I am going to give you a real life description. During the 15th century, the great scholar Erasmus wrote in a letter to a friend the following. The floors are in general laid with white clay, and are covered with rushes. Occasionally renewed, but so imperfectly that the bottom layer is left undisturbed sometimes for 20 years, harboring expectoration. I'm going to pause here just in case you don't know what that means. That is like mucus or spit, like sort of like hawking a loogie. And we continue now. Vomiting, the leakage of dogs and men, ale droppings, scraps of fish, and other abominations not fit to be mentioned. Whenever the weather changes, a vapor is exhaled which I consider very detrimental to health. I may add that England is not only everywhere surrounded by sea, but is in many places swampy and marshy, intersected by salt rivers to say nothing of salt provisions, in which the common people take so much delight, I am confident the island would be much more salubrious if the use of rushes were abandoned, and if the rooms were built in such a way as to be exposed to the sky on two or three sides, and all the windows so built as to be opened or closed at once, and so completely closed as not to admit the foul air through For, as it is beneficial to health to admit the air, so it is equally beneficial at times to exclude it." That is a very, very deep and interesting description of what it was like in a medieval castle. I can't even imagine the smell. Like, even when my house is, you know, I'm in, let's say, two weeks into my deadline and it's looking crazy in here, I don't think it's that bad. So, rush or straw woven mats were introduced to some to help with cleaning, so that these could be taken outside and beaten while the floors were swept. However, some still preferred the strewn look. Herbs would be sprinkled throughout the rushes and mats to keep stench away. Sort of like people use Febreze now, I guess, or baking soda, I guess, to pull up some of the odors. Some of the herbs used were lavender, chamomile, rose, petals, daisies, cowslips, marjoram, basil, mint, violet, sage, and fennel. Some of these smells are still used today in some of your air fresheners. In Thomas Tusser's book, 500 Points of Good Husbandry, he gives lots of advice to housekeepers during the Middle Ages, and here is what he says about getting rid of fleas in the rushes. While wormwood hath seed, get a bundle or twain, to save against march, to make flea to refrain. Where chamber is swept and wormwood is strewn, no flea for his life dare abide to be known. What savor is best, if physic be true, for places infected than wormwood and rue? It is as a comfort for heart and the brain, and therefore to have it, It is not in vain. Isn't that a lovely little poem about cleaning? I think I should make one up and recite it to my kids when it's time for our chores. I'm going to have a drink to that. Hey, history lovers! Eliza here. We're interrupting today's happy hour to let you know that Lori and I host another fascinating podcast with our friend Brenna Ash. Hey there, this is Brenna. Crime Feast is a true crime podcast hosted by three friends who are obsessed with all things crime. Each week, join Brenna, Eliza, and I as we serve up a platter of murders, mayhem, missing persons, tragedies, and more. Feast on notorious tales ripped from today's headlines and resurrected from the past. Until then, stay safe out there. We don't want you on the menu next. Now, back to the show. Cheers! Sometimes the housemaid would scrub the floors and walls with water and lye. Lye soap is made from the ashes of trees and shrubs and mixed with lard to make a soap. However, this was only if they were made of stone or wood. If the wood floors happened to be covered over with plaster, she'd want to steer clear of using a water based cleaning method, as this would ruin the plaster floors. The same goes for dirt floors, obviously, because you would just end up creating a lot of mud. After cleaning up the floor as much as she could, a housemaid would then move on to the fireplaces. She'd clean out the ashes and soot and replace it with new logs for the day. Once upstairs, she would clean out the basins and replace them with fresh water, as well as empty the chamber pots. Remember from our happy hour on our favorite places in Scotland, I talked about the Gardaloo? Yep, those chamber pots would be just tossed out the window. There was a moat, it would go there. If not, well, Gardaloo! <laughs> if your maid was considerate of others, she would dump it into the garderobe where it would fall into a nice messy pile on the ground specified for that very purpose. Your maid would also sweep the floors and make the bed, or if you're the maid, you're sweeping the floors and making the bed, which is often my case. If The bed needed cleaning, she would collect up the linens and then give it to the laundress. If the tapestries were in need of cleaning, she would take them down and outside to beat the dust and grime out of them. The maid would also be in charge of wiping down tables, benches, candlesticks, wardrobes, etc. Pretty much any piece of furniture in the room, and she would also wash down the walls. The housemaid would also be in charge of polishing any gold or silver in the house. If she happened to finish her chores early, she would help out the cooks or laundresses. If the mattress itself needed cleaning, which it often did because of lice, fleas, other nasty Bed bugs, bodily fluids, etc., the maids would have to unstuff the mattress, have the mattress linen cleaned, and then she would have to restuff it. That does not sound fun at all. And also, I should note here, you notice that once she finished her own chores early, she couldn't just go take a break and enjoy her life. She had to then go help other people do her chores. She was working from sunup till sundown, and it was not an easy job. It should also be noted that the English parliament during the 14th century seemed to understand the need for cleanliness and its link to disease. Here is a proclamation they made in 1388. Item, that so much dung and filth of the garbage and entrails be cast and put into ditches, rivers, and other waters, so that the air there is grown greatly corrupt and infected, and many maladies and other intolerable diseases do happen daily. It is accorded and assented that the proclamation be made as well in the city of London as in other cities, boroughs, and towns through the realm of England, where it shall be needful that all they do, cast and lay all such annoyances, dung, garbages, entrails, and other odour, in ditches, rivers, waters, and other places aforesaid, shall cause them utterly to be removed, avoided, and carried away. Everyone upon pain to lose and forfeit to our lord the king, the sum of 20 pounds. That was a hefty sum back then, so better not be dumping your garbage. So let's move on to laundry, which I'm now feeling grateful all I have to do is hit rewash on mine instead of, you know, doing all of these things that I'm about to tell you about. So the laundress had quite a taxing job on her hands, literally. Her hands were seeped in water day after day and become dry and cracked, and the soaps that they used, the sly soap, was not very good for the skin. Her job was to clean and dry all the linens and garments within the household. The laundress also had the privilege, whether she liked it or not, to know about about everyone's bodily functions, however nasty seeing the bloodstained sheets and then having to scrub them away may have been. These ladies could rake in on the bribes from courtiers who would pay to know the cycles of the queens or even to see the sheets after a marriage was consummated. Being a laundress was backbreaking work. These ladies had to haul the water needed to do the cleaning from the well, moat, or the closest river to where they did laundry, sometimes outside and sometimes in a designated room, no matter the weather. This is a 365-day job, so whether it's, you know, 100 degrees hot outside or negative 10 you're doing the laundry. After being heated, the water was dumped into a vat or into a bucking basket. Not only did they have to supply the water, they made the soap as well. Usually the lye soap that I mentioned before made from the ashes of trees and shrubs and mixed with lard. Lye soap was strong stuff and could cut through the toughest grease spots and other stains and also did a number on the flesh, wearing away at the layers of skin. After getting the steaming water filled with lye soap, the laundress would dump the linens in and stir the pot with a wooden paddle. Then literally beat the laundry until it was clean. Her job may have been a little easier than those who didn't have access to such tools and took their laundry to the nearest river, soaked it, and then beat it against rocks. That would take forever. Again, grateful for that washer that I did not switch over. The next and last cleaning job I've got for you tonight is the job of a scullion or scullery maid. She or he was the lowest ranking among the servants and may even be responsible for cleaning the chamber pots of the other servants. They reported to the kitchen maid or cook. A scullion's job was to clean the kitchen. This included the floors, fireplace, pots and pans, and other dishes and utensils. Disposing of the refuse, they were required to rise first and light all the fires and begin heating the water in the kitchen. Occasionally, if they were down in servants, someone was ill or died, you get it. A scullion might serve the people in the hall and polish silver, gold, and other expensive items. The backbreaking work was never done. They were the first to wake and the last to go to bed and were looked down upon so much by the other servants, they were usually not even allowed to eat with them. Sometimes the Artist jobs are the least appreciated. That was my topic this week on cleaning a medieval castle. Let's move on to what I'm reading this week. This week, I'm finishing up a book that I started to read a while ago, but had to set aside while I was doing some research and meeting a deadline. And that book was All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dorr. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. I'm going to read to you the back cover of this book. From the highly acclaimed, multiple award-winning Anthony Doerr, the beautiful, stunningly ambitious instant New York Times bestseller about a blind French girl and a German boy whose paths collide in occupied France as both try to survive the devastation of World War II. Marie laure lives with her father in Paris near the Museum of Natural History, where he works as a master of its thousands of locks. When she's six, she goes blind, and her father builds a perfect miniature of their neighborhood so she can memorize it by touch and navigate her way home. When she is 12, the Nazis occupy Paris and father and daughter flee to the walled citadel of Saint Malo, where Mary Laure's reclusive great uncle lives in a tall house by the sea. With them they carry what might be the museum's most valuable and dangerous jewel. In a mining town in Germany, the orphan Werner grows up with his younger sister, enchanted by a crude radio they find. Werner becomes an expert at building and fixing these crucial new instruments, a talent that wins him a place in a brutal academy for Hitler youth, then a special assignment to track the resistance. More and more aware of the cost of his intelligence, Werner travels through the heart of the war and finally into St. Malo, where his story and Mary Loris converge. This book is really, really good. It's really, really deep, very literary, but also just completely touching. I highly recommend it. And now for a book of mine, The Highlander's Stolen Bride, book two in my Sutherland Legacy series. After a harsh betrayal, Magnus Strath Sutherland, Laird of Dornock, accepts a commission from the king to squelch an English lord's siege at the Scottish border. What better way to torment his new English enemy than to defeat his army and steal his beautiful bride? At first, Strath plans to toss the Sassenach lass into a dark cell and forget about her, but there's something about the way she defies him that he finds alluring, not to mention how very much he'd like to kiss her. Eva de Clare, youngest daughter of the Earl of Northwick, is pledged in matrimony to a cruel lord blackmailing her family. Her salvation comes in the form of a terrifying Highlander who interrupts the ceremony, but salvation turns to horror when she's plucked from where she stands and whisked across the Scottish border. Eva isn't about to be made into a prisoner of war, and once she sees the kindness beneath her captor's exterior, she decides she won't be sent back to England to be wed either. In fact, she might just be the woman to warm this Highland warrior's heart and heart. I really enjoyed writing that book, and the entire series. I just finished the fifth book in series. Uh, My readers are really loving it and I love all my characters too. I hope you do. A question from readers this week is If you could have wine with anyone from history, who would it be? My goodness. Hold on. Let me have a sip of wine before I answer that one. That is a loaded question and one I've thought about many times. At first, I used to say that it would be Henry VIII because I absolutely love his history, but then I'd be afraid that he would uh, try to invite me back to his room and I'd have to deny him and then I'd end up headless. So then I thought, oh, well, What about Elizabeth I? I absolutely adore her. I think that um, she's a very powerful woman and I love her history, but she was also pretty brutal. So I'm not sure that I would want to sit down with her either. I'd be a little bit scared that she might imprison me. So let's see who would it be? I think maybe William Wallace. He was a warrior for the people, a very strong person that you all learned about um, in my previous podcast, and someone that I really greatly admire for following his convictions, fighting for what he believed in. And I think that I would like to sit down with him, at least even just to cheers him for all that he did. So now I have a question for you. Let's get back to this cleaning thing. What chore do you hate the most? The chore I hate the most is a toss-up between folding laundry, I think, and washing baseboards. Washing baseboards actually might win that one. I hate bending down and, like, getting all the grime off the floor. Yeah, I'm going to go with washing baseboards being the worst. If you have any questions for us, please email us at historybooksandwine@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Our website is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com. We'll have the show notes for today's episode listed there. They can also be found on iTunes with our podcast. We're now on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and Alexa. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review, and remember you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed hearing about how to clean your own medieval castle, and thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out new episodes published weekly on Thursdays. Next up will be Madeline talking about medieval healing on April 25th. Lori will be speaking about medieval cooking on May 2nd. And our next happy hour is May 9th, which we will hopefully be recording in advance together on our writing retreat next week. And that topic is going to be the most fun topic of all this month, which is hygiene. We are obsessed with historical hygiene, and I think that you all will be too after you hear our podcast. So have a great week, everyone. Bye.